0: Michael, are you worried at all about all the data you give up online?
1: I probably should be more worried. I mean, think about it. Can I
0: worry you? Can I make a case for why you should be worried? Yeah, yeah. Every time you get online, right, you've got an IP address that's identifying you specifically in your online place with all the things you do. And then you go to all these sites and you're entering all kinds of information, which companies are gathering, right? And so I think the big example a lot of people have to be worried was Cambridge Analytica, right? That's the big scandal that happened is that our data is being taken by these companies and sold. So in this case, our Facebook data was just sold to these other companies who then were targeting us with ads. That doesn't bother
1: you? Is this why like sometimes I'll be on the Facebook and all of a sudden there'll be an ad for something I looked at on Amazon?
0: Well, there's a variety of reasons why that could be happening. One is probably Google Pixel that tracks you across websites. So yeah, when you go to Amazon to buy something and then you go back to Facebook, it's tracking you across the internet.
1: Doesn't that just optimize my viewing experience, my internet experience?
0: I don't know. Is it targeting you constantly as a consumer, right, to always buy things? Because it's always about buying, right? Don't you want to be exposed to new things? Or do you want to just be kind of like put in these narrow little categories where they always target the same things? To I you? like
1: being targeted in a little box. I don't like <laughs> things to, to pierce that I, I've never seen. So I don't know. Do you buy the things that are advertised to you? Do no. You click on, like, no. The Facebook I only buy ads? things when I, I decide that I'm going to buy them. Yeah. Which is what I've inspired by an ad. No, I just, I know that I should be more worried. I sign up these things that are like, oh, do you want cookies to enable? And I say, sure, because it makes things a lot easier which is probably what makes things absolutely terrible. But does anyone really wanna know what I'm thinking or what I'm doing? And also, sometimes I make stuff up on the Facebook post, I'll say something that I'm not really doing.
0: Ooh, that's almost a form of resistance, right? To giving them false information.
1: It's kind of like when I was keeping a fake journal so that people a couple hundred years will read back and be like, oh my God, this guy was crazy.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good idea. You could just write about like your administration as president. They'll have absolutely they no idea. You won't be able to find any other documentation of it, but they'll be like, we have this source though. Really vivid. <laughs> I also worry, there's the Black Mirror side of me, right? If On Netflix, it's a techno-dystopian show. And so the Black Mirror side of me worries about, well, right now it doesn't feel like our data is bad, but how could people misuse our data, right? And you hear these stories in the news about how some of these apps and social media sites are doing a lot more than just collecting our social media posts. They're actually collecting everything on your phone. Really? Right? Like you hear these stories. And then you hear people that say, well, I also think my phone's listening to me.
1: Phone's listen to you? Oh, so I have that. this Sonos thing. Does that thing listen to me? That thing does listen to me because every time I say Alexa, it says, oh, crap.
0: <laughs> I think the thing is it's hard to know, right? I feel like I've been trying to learn about it and I still don't feel like I understand what data is being collected with me on me, what people could be doing with it. Are they just using it to target ads at me or could they be doing something else with it? And like,
1: What nefarious thing could they really do to you?
0: If somebody had all of your text messages, I don't know, and they wanted to blackmail you, seems like they could do that, right? I don't know.
1: I guess I am out of something that I need to pick up at the grocery store.
0: Are you worried yet is the real question at the end of this line of inquiry. I'm not
1: yet, and I probably represent (laughs) most people who we just kind of willingly give this stuff up and don't really think about it anyway till Sunday.
0: I think as educators we have a lot to learn about this and so it's hard to know what to even teach kids about it I'm a little more worried about kids because they use social media so much and they're kind of more vulnerable They're figuring out their identities and so that
1: worries me more like when I was a teenager I was a moody person and I had a little thing to write stuff down But imagine doing that in a public place or doing that and then someone having access that frightens me
0: Yeah, and I think it even bothers me too when I see young people who are most in the spotlight are like young athletes because at 19 or 20 they get drafted into these leagues. And I've already seen people pulling up old social media posts from them and saying, how could you tweet this? And the tweets are from when they're like in eighth grade. And I'm like, oh, this feels problematic. There's a lot to take in here and a lot to think about. And we obviously don't have answers to these questions about no. what we should care about, and how we should educate for it. But we are bringing in a guest today who knows a lot more than both of us combined, probably. (laughs) And actually, I think I can say that with confidence. On this topic, she's gonna know a lot more than us. We would like to welcome into the podcast, Lucy Pangrazio. Hello. Thank you. And this is our first episode we've actually (laughs) recorded with someone when it's not the same day. Oh my
1: goodness.
2: We're in the future, yep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you're joining us all the way from Australia, and can you tell us a little bit about your background in education?
2: Sure. Currently a a research fellow at Deakin University in the Centre for Research for Educational Impact. But my journey to sort of get there was, first of all, as an English teacher, classroom English teacher for quite a few years. And when I was in the classroom, I just realised that there were these issues that kept popping into the classroom. I'd hear kids in the back of the class whispering, and there were obviously issues around what was going on in social media. They became things that I couldn't ignore. And I'm not sure if in the state, States, it's like this but in Australia we have a lot of cyber safety. So at the school I was teaching at there was lots of cyber safety classes, but the issues that were coming into my classroom and that were occupying my students' mind were not really to do with cyber safety but more the kind of social sort of aspects of use. So I became interested in this and pursued a PhD on how young people use digital media because I was looking at teenagers sort of 14 to 18 A lot of their use was around social media. So I started sort of looking at their understandings of platforms and platform mechanisms, what kind of critical practices they brought to their everyday use. And my main goal, because I was an educator first, was really about trying to bridge that gap between school and homes. How can we support young people in some of the challenges that they face when using social media? So that kind of led me down this path at looking at platforms, but then of course data, which is my current area focus datification and young people's understandings of datification and personal data.
1: Do the teenagers are studying understand the personal data more than I do?
2: Some do. I think it's pretty mixed. I think there is a general awareness that this thing exists, and I think it's the same for adults. We've looked at young people, but I think many of the concerns that we've unearthed through this process has really been about how adults feel as well, because it is a very new and evolving field. Some do, and they have a sense of what it is, but it's always a bit approximate.
0: We kind of came to this topic because I'm teaching a social media curriculum class with doctoral students, and we were exploring issues that we thought would be really interesting to understand. And we came across a series of articles that you and Neil Selwyn wrote on studying how youth use social media and their concerns about their data. And it done some really cool work And you've also done a lot of broader work in the area, too. We should put in a plug before we go too much further that you do have a pretty recent book out Young People's Literacies in the Digital Age Continuities, Conflicts, and Contradictions. Congratulations on publishing that book. Thank you.
2: Thanks a lot. That's right. It is a bit broader. So that came from my PhD. And I really was interested, yeah, in how young people use digital media in everyday life and then platform mechanisms, their understandings of algorithms, metrics, the interface, how they're kind of positioned, targeted at advertising. And then that led me to data. And I think in many ways, they're two sides of the same coin, social media platforms and data, because platforms are really ultimately data hungry. So they're kind of designed in a way for young people to, not that they consciously would know, but they're putting in information in ways that can be easily turned into data that can be used for other purposes.
0: So can you tell us what you did in these studies?
2: Yeah, we're on the third of this kind of series and they're called the Data Smart series. The first one was working with teenagers who worked with a developer to build an app and it was a very basic chat app so you can send text and images and the thing about the app was that we get the kids to start using the app and communicating and they're generating personal data as they do it. The thing about the app is that it's able to collect the personal data that's generated through chat and then and present that back to them through a dashboard, so through a website, kind of a portal if you like, and we're able to show them the different types of data that are collected.
0: And one of the problems with this issue is most social media companies don't tell us what data they collect exactly, right? It's hard to study, it's hard for researchers to study a topic like this because we can't go and look at all the information that Snapchat or Instagram actually collect.
2: Yes, and I think there used to be more access to some of that than there is now. It's become reduced, but we actually, our blue sky picture for this project was to be able to use like Facebook data, but of course we couldn't do that because we wanted to look at all the data that a young person generates throughout the course of a day and we're both social scientists, so as soon as we started speaking to tech people, they're like, "Mm, I don't think you can actually do that. So that what we decided to do was to build our own app and even though it had limitations because it wasn't really part of what they were already using, we kind of had to introduce the app. It was a really neat way to show some of the ways that data is being collected and potentially used. So we collected text, image and geolocational data and so we could then show that to them on a map, like say with the geolocational data, where they'd been across the course of the week. where what? So we tracked them. That was the point. So we were sort of mimicking how their data might be collected and reused they went away and used the app for a week And then in one of the workshops when we came back, we were able to show them, okay, this is all the information we've gathered from you across the course of the week. For example, we could see where they'd been, which shops they'd been to, who they'd been texting with. Obviously, this was all had to be cleared ethically and there was consent around this as well, but it is a very tricky ethical debate. But the thing that we found most fascinating was just how moved they were by the map. We had sentiment analysis of images and there was natural language processing. processing of the text. So if they sent a photo, like they took a selfie and sent it to a friend through the dashboard attached to the app, we could pick up whether they were happy or sad or angry. But the thing that really moved them the most was the, the mapping and the tracking, which was really interesting to us because most apps have some form of tracking in them. And so we sort of thought that they would be cognizant of that. But really, it wasn't until it's materialized and shown on a map. You know, we know you went to McDonald's yesterday at two particularly for one of the vegan students. That was quite confronting.
1: Exposed. <laughs>
2: exposed, yeah.
1: I went to New York City this weekend to see the Harry Potter Cursed Child, but I didn't yeah. tell anyone that I was going on social media i made a point not to post that i was going to new york city although i turned on facebook at one point and it said welcome to new york city which kind of pissed me off because i didn't tell anyone that i was there that's weird so,
0: so not yeah not only do they have that data and sometimes we also don't realize how we give it away right i was just mm-hmm. recently tweeted something and a friend replied and the geolocation data actually showed up here so this is a visible portrait as, as opposed to what we're talking about where a lot of this that we don't even realize it's being collected And so I text the person, what are you doing in this place? I was like, are you like interviewing for another job? And he goes, oh, crap, that was online. And he had to go delete it. And this person studies geographic information data. He knew this and he had forgotten that he'd had that geolocation turned on. But yeah, would it bother you, Michael, that somebody at these tech companies could look up every single place you went to in New York?
1: Yeah, I don't like that. We've got you worried. (laughs)
2: The second part of the project was to kind of work with kids. You know, I've talked a bit about the app, but really we had a lot of workshops around it. And the app only worked so well, like the second version of the app, which we've now got called Friend Send, is working really well. But ultimately, it's the workshop and the thinking with kids that is the most important learnings. The second part of the project was really to work with young people to work out ways that they could protect their data better. We workshopped with them, brainstormed some ways that they could protect their data, not only, you know, privacy settings, but we also did some cool stuff around obfuscation, which is kind of like trying to disrupt what you guys were talking about before. So disrupting what the data or who the data thinks you are, trying to get them to either put up a false profile or change their birthday, which a lot of them already do, by the way. Or one thing that worked quite well was what we called the selfie challenge. Take a selfie, but to try and trick it, either not being able able to register your face or to try and have a different kind of response to the one that might have been predicted initially. So they took a before and after, if that makes sense.
0: So I like in the article, you actually have a picture of one of the students who's making like a really contorted face that's just silly and ridiculous as a way it's like a form of resistance data obfuscation
2: yeah that's right so we wanted to work with them on that and we were thinking we showed them all these crazy haircuts that they can use to try and trick the facial recognition technology but at the end of the day those practices sit so far outside of what people do that they're not really practical and that's what the kids kind of said to us you know i'm on social media because i want my friends to recognize me because i'm there to kind of connect with others. So if I'm disrupting that by putting crazy makeup on or hiding my face, then it kind of refutes the whole purpose of social media in the first place, which I think is a very good point. And there's a whole kind of body of literature based around obfuscation and Although it's useful, I think it's quite limited in that these are huge problems that one person on their own is is going to find hard to actually do anything really meaningful, I guess, in speaking back to the powers that be.
1: So I was thinking (laughs) that I could possibly slip my cell phone into my neighbor's car and that would really make things confusing
0: well and th- doesn't it speak to how out of control we are in this when we have to make up such ridiculous things to do to only have little pieces of our data right like how long are you going to give your neighbor your phone and it's, so it's going to throw the the data off you know
1: and also i need to, if something happens at daycare <laughs> i need to know Yeah, that's
2: right. That's exactly right. And I think your discussion at the beginning about trade-off and compromise, we do want an efficient internet. We want it to know who we are. So it makes sense of all the information we come across because let's face it, there is a huge volumes of information that are very hard for anyone to get their head around. And what a lot of this kind of does in, in many ways is optimize that experience for us. But I mean, I think Neil and I both come from the same perspective that we shouldn't then be compromising our privacy for that. So surely there's a way we can have both. At the moment, I don't think we – it's obviously too far in favor of optimizing experience and then selling that data on, obviously, for profit.
1: So when I was in uh, New York City over the weekend – We had a couple hours kill, so we went to this museum called SpyGate. And it was really cool because we got to be spies and do some spy things. And one of the things they talked about was data and turning on your privacy functions when you're searching or put on private searches. And they talked about using WhatsApp because that cannot be broken into unless someone gives it away, I think. I didn't take notes as I realized that I should have now.
0: I think what you're speaking to, Michael, is it's hard. I know I've been trying to be more data protective in all my uses. And I've had incredible problems just even switching browsers. So I switched to Firefox because it's like more mm. data secure than Chrome. And it keeps bumping into our university network. Thing is, it becomes really inconvenient, I yep. feel like, to do all this stuff. And it takes a lot of effort. And you have to be very determined, which kind of turns us back to what should we do with kids? How do we educate mm. them on this? And it's not really just youth, but the education can be a place where we can help them be better than a lot of us as adults who are also unsure what to do.
2: I think a lot of our participants have explained that they experienced exactly the same thing as you. So when we set them off to do, so some of them used Adblock, for example, and they found that that really compromised their experience of the internet as did maintaining many of these systems and making sense. And then we showed them Lightbeam, which is this add-on for Firefox. So it can actually tell you who is following you. It wasn't part of the app, but just as part of the workshops. If you go to a particular website, it then shows you all the different people who are beginning to track you and where they are in the world, it's quite alarming. And that really cut across with them as well. But how you actually do anything about that? I mean, one thing we found is that kids tend to feel that sense of powerlessness. And I don't think we have adequately worked out what the next step is. Obviously, I think awareness is really important. And I think perhaps it's not so much one big change, but lots of little moments where it's teachers just talking about it, a general awareness around these concerns, then maybe we can start to push. for things to change on a bigger level apart from just with the individual. Also obviously you know regulation of technology companies and policy frameworks in education. So I'm not sure what it's like in the States but in Australia we're having this real battle with what's the role of apps in schools for example and what teachers are teachers aware of they use an app like class dojo where their kids data goes as a result of that there's a whole bunch of apps now being used in schools to make teachers jobs easier because it is a hard job it's not really their fault but it's just that in doing that in trying to do their job they're actually bringing these corporations into the school and these are issues that probably have precursors in other kinds of media but i think it's really hitting a scale that we need to start paying attention on the one hand i think there's a role for individual agency and that education can play around that. But then I think there's a bigger question around speaking back to, well, in our case, educational bureaucrats, technology companies and politicians. So there's a real advocacy role, I think, that's important for us all to play.
0: And to me, this speaks to, we've had a lot of discussions because in the United States, digital citizenship is more cybersecurity, which I've, I've taken a bit of issue with because citizenship is really what you were just talking about, which is actually taking an active role in the social or common good, right? That we should have data protected and that should be a equity and liberty issue that we should be concerned with. And so to me, that's digital citizenship potentially, Michael, and that's a connection for social studies educators. This is a current event and understanding what we should do because we shouldn't have to try to make sense of these incredibly complex issues. And obviously it's a even though we should understand them better, it's kind of like swimming upstream. And most people just acquiesce that they're going to swim downstream because mm. it becomes so difficult. After reading your article, I downloaded Lightbeam add-on to Firefox. Mm. It's incredible, but mm. I have no idea what to make of the data, all these sites. You yeah, who's you...
1: watching you? Do you find so... it like names <laughs> and IPs of all these random people following you?
0: Well, it's just making apparent what was already happening. So it just shows you what's already happening.
1: Yeah, and I think
2: that's what our work has really done. It's tried to materialize that Back end, that infrastructure, that's been our goal. But I think that's step one. <laughs> there needs to be m- multiple players involved in doing something about this. And the other thing is that tech companies are getting really cluey because they're understanding that people are getting edgy and are concerned about this. So they're now putting in transparency measures with Google. You can look at what data has been collected with Facebook, the same. So they're, they're, they're producing these kinds of forward facing dashboards if you like that have this illusion of transparency See, look we're showing you what we're collecting about you but what you actually can do with that or whether that just dimies any sort of real pushback it just keeps that at bay it's a very fast moving
0: area so lucy i know you and neil developed a framework for how to even think about the different components of data and how we approach them in education can you tell us a little bit about that
2: Sure. So we sort of felt that there was a bit of a gap in the literature here because there's obviously a lot of literature and research on data safety and in other parts there's a lot of literature on data science, so how big data can be used to tell us things about particular populations and journalists are being trained in data science. We felt that there was a bit of a gap in how do we build everyday people's understandings of personal data. So we drew on the kind of digital literacies tradition or critical literacies literacy's tradition, which is my background, and tried really come up with five things. It took us a very long time to work out what these different steps in the framework might be. And that really is because personal data itself is just so complex, like where it comes from, how it's generated, how it's captured. So the five steps we came up with were, the first is data identification. So that is really just working out what is personal data. So coming back to that earlier question Michael from you do we even understand what personal data is I think the first step obviously is to be clear on what we're talking about and then how it's generated the second step in the framework is data understandings where does it come from how is it circulated and how is it being reused so that might be where we draw in some of the free tools to kind of identify what's happening with our data. The third part of the framework is data reflexivity. So that's where we encourage people to think about the implications of that data. Okay, so so what that somebody in Japan knows that I just clicked on a Jeep advertisement? What significance does that have? So trying to think through the consequence for that personal data. Data uses is the fourth step. It's then starting to think about how you can manage and use data better. I think this is where the literacy framework has a real advantage because it's not just understanding where data comes from and what it's used for, but then how can the individual start to use data in a way that will advantage them? So how can they manage their personal data better? And we're not just talking about personal data that is generated, but also thinking about personal data that comes back to you in the form of dashboards, say through learning analytics and that kind of thing, which is really relevant to students. What can you do with that particular information? And then finally, the fifth step, which we kind of think of as perhaps acquiring the most complex understandings is data tactic. Can you do data differently? How can we bring in some of these obfuscatory techniques? How can we use it in a way that was not foreseen or could not be foreseen in its original kind of generation, if that makes sense. So those five steps, I think all occur in some respects simultaneously, but for us, it was just trying to break it down and then demystify some of these really opaque, complex things that are going on.
0: I find that really helpful, listing out different areas we can think about, because it seems like such an overwhelming topic. That's great. In one of your articles, you also just talked about different types of data, and I had never thought about it that way, that there's data that we give, so our profile information we put in on Twitter. The data that the companies take, which is like you think about the geolocation data that Michael's a little bit worried about, and kids are too. And then that dashboard stuff when they tell us yeah. we have what our Twitter insights are when we look at our tweets. It's like this, this tweet has 2,001 impressions, and you're like, "Cool." Wait, what's an impression? <laughs> so like yeah, understanding exactly. the data they give us back. Your work is really helpful in taking steps towards educators really doing this in meaningful ways. And it's schools give us these. Spaces with kids to explore. And I think about how maybe even an inquiry approach is really useful because a lot of your kids across the classroom may have some real knowledge of data. Yeah. And you always have a couple hackers or kids really interested in computers who understand this better. And then they can take on roles really in schools where maybe sometimes they don't feel leadership roles in schools. And now they can be like, oh, yeah, let me tell you how your data works.
2: Yeah, totally. And one of the kids that we came across, he had some really interesting things that he was doing. And I really agree that that is the way forward. They're kids that probably not typically popular. They might be a little bit geeky, if you like. But they could actually really – they have real knowledge in this area to to really help their peers understand some of this complexity. They themselves are probably doing it without even realizing what they're doing. So perhaps the educational part is just bringing – a language to it and helping them to see that this could be really powerful, transformative
1: work. So Lucy, not everyone's going to be able to use the app that you developed. What are some other ways that teachers can use with their students to get at some of this hard discussion?
2: Well, I think there's four things. The first thing is to find out what young people are doing with digital media, which we've kind of talked around a bit already. And I think teachers together can help develop understandings of platform mechanisms with kids themselves. So you can do small group activities where you look at what's the interface of Facebook, what's the kind of mechanisms there, what do the metrics do. And even in small groups, if a group does Facebook, one does Snapchat, one does Instagram, there's a lot of really important work that can be done just together with kids it doesn't require teachers to have specialist kind of knowledge and then I think it's just another really cool thing to do which we did in another project last year was to get kids to analyse newsfeed or their friend recommendation to trace why they were recommended those particular friends or why particular items appeared in the newsfeed, and as with most educational things it's not doesn't really matter if it's accurate enough it's just bringing awareness to the fact that there is a process behind these particular things appearing or being suggested and that doing that you can then start to think about how you might intervene if you wanted a different set
0: of results. I love that. My students and I in our class, we were talking about these algorithms that social media companies use are secret. They don't tell you exactly how the algorithms work. And sometimes machine learning is a big part of that. And so we thought it would be a fun activity to uncover the algorithms and try to figure out what is it that they're using to show you your news feeds. Yeah. I think it could be kind of a fun inquiry investigation.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think, as I was saying before, a lot of these understandings are pretty tacit anyway. So they probably have a sense of why a car ad might appear or a clothing ad. But just to kind of bring that out and have a conversation around it and why it's a problem is the, probably the powerful learning experience.
1: Lucy Pongrazio, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's been great to talk.
1: Where can our listeners find you and your work online?
2: I'm on Twitter at Lucy Pangrazio, and um, I've also got a couple of project websites. So one is Data Smart Schools, and also we've got one related to our current project called Data Smart Kids on the Deakin website as well, and
0: all my publications are on Google Scholar.
1: Nice. We'll make sure to link those in the show notes.
0: Great, right, thank you. And again, thank you so much for joining us. We definitely will tweet at your Twitter account and check out those websites and just keep learning in all kinds of online spaces where our data
1: is still being collected. ABL, always be learning. And <laughs>
2: Thank you very much, me too. <laughs>
1: so at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun in creative education or you just want to steal all of our information, tweet us, at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook and in one secret place, which... It's so secret, we don't know about it. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be.
0: And our favorite type of data at the Visions of Education podcast are five-star reviews. If you leave one on Apple Podcasts, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka.
1: I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next
0: time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.